This is part two. We've already covered part one three, in our third night of the seminar. But before we begin this topic, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, today as we look at the subject on the mark of the beast, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would be here. We pray that you would guide each mind as we seek to understand what Scripture is teaching. For we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you were with us on our third night, one of the first things that we, we did is we tried to show from the Bible that the mark of the beast is not a tattoo, it's not a chip, it's not the number 666. If you're just joining us by watching live, I just want to say that if you, arch- if you go back in the archives of our series, night three is when we talk about that and we explain that from the Bible. So today, I want to start this presentation with a quote from C.S. Lewis. Some of you will know who he is. He's a Christian writer and apologist. He's also the author of a, a, a number of, of well-known books. Some of you may have heard of like the Chronicles of Narnia, but he also wrote Surprised by Joy and Mere Christianity. There's a lot of books that he's written, but this is one of the statements that I want to focus on today as we introduce our topic. C.S. Lewis wrote, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood become a matter of life and death to you. Now, what does that mean? Well, basically to summarize this statement, unless you're willing to die for something, you probably don't really believe in something, okay? Let me give you some examples. If I ask you, how many of you believe that it's important that we obey God? I think everybody would raise their hand, right? Everybody believes it's important to obey God. But you see, folks, when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, this tested how much he really believed it was important to obey God. Does that make sense? You don't know how much you believe something until you are tested on that point as a matter of life or death. Does that make sense? Here's another example. If I asked you, how many of you believe it's important to pray? I think everybody would raise their hand. But what if praying meant that you would get thrown into a den of lions? You don't know how much you believe something until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death, okay? Here's another example. If I ask you how many of you believe it's important that we only worship God, I think everybody would say yes. But when those three Hebrew men were tested to see whether or not they would stand true in the face of the burning furnace, it became clear when it became a matter of life and death how much they really believed it was important to worship only God. The mark of the beast is a similar test, and I want you to notice what it says. He had power to give life. This is from Revelation 13, 15. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be what? 
Did you notice that this test, it has a life or death scenario in it as well? Here's what verse 16 says. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a what? A mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. Now, today as we cover this topic, I want to answer the first question that we need to understand as we look at the mark of the beast. According to the Bible, how many classes of people will exist at the end of time? Now, I want you to notice Revelation 14, verse 9. Notice what it says here. It says, the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Now, please tell me, this description that we've just read, this is what happens to the people who receive what? The mark of the beast. Can you see that? This is a very lengthy but very descriptive uh, view of what happens to those that receive the mark of the beast. Notice another group. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Did you notice that this is a group of people who do not receive the mark of the beast. It says that they, they gain the victory over the mark. The Bible only describes two categories at the end of time, only two, those that receive the mark and those that do not. There is no spiritual Switzerland at the end. Now, we said this in our third night. If you want to know what the mark of the beast is, you have to know who is the beast that gives this mark. And in order to understand that, we need to look carefully at Revelation 13. I'm going to highlight seven points, and I want you to notice them with me. John wrote, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue Forty and two months, and he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is six hundred threescore and six. Now, Today, I want to highlight seven characteristics in these verses that we've read. Number one, the beast that
that gives a mark is a symbolic beast, not a literal animal, which means from what we've studied in our previous presentations, this is a political power. It says that it rises up out of the sea. And according to Revelation 7.15, this represents a densely populated area, an area with peoples, nations, and tongues. It also tells us that on his forehead is the name of blasphemy. In our seminar on previous nights, we've covered that this is a very specific characteristic of claiming characteristics that only God has. Not only that, the Bible says that a power called the dragon gives him his seat. It also says that he rules for 42 months. Now, 42 months in literal time is a little bit, it, it's probably, um, probably like four years or so, a little bit less, right? But in prophetic time, this is the same thing as 1,260 years. And we talked about that in an earlier presentation. It says that this power asks for worship, and it's marked by the number 666. Now, look there on the screen for a moment, if you will, and please note, here we have seven characteristics of the beast that gives the mark. It's a political power that arises out of a densely populated area of the earth. It's a religious power. It's a political and religious power. It receives its throne from a power called the dragon. He rules for 1,260 years. He asks for worship, and he's characterized by the number 666. Now, if there was only one characteristic, like the first one, there's a lot of political powers in the world. But when you combine a political power that arises out of a densely populated area that's religious, that asks for worship, and characterized by the number 666, suddenly it only narrows it all down to one power on earth. And that power, according to prophecy and the fulfillment of this description, is the Roman papacy. We've talked about this in our night when we covered about the Antichrist. And let me show you how that's fulfilled. So we talked about this, this power, the papacy. It's a political power. Not only that, but it did arise out of the old world. This is where nations rose and fell. We know that. Not only that, but this is a religious power. And we learned a little bit about what the Bible says about blasphemy. Um, we learned earlier in the seminar that when a power claims to be God or claims to forgive sins, this is a blasphemous characteristic. And in their own words, they claim to be God on earth. The Bible also said that he would receive his seat from the dragon. Now, in the original Greek, the word seat is the Greek word Thronos. What English word do we get from that? Throne, right? We get the word throne, right? So I want you to notice what it says in Revelation 12, 3, because we want to know who this dragon is. There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And, her and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who was the only child ever born that was caught up to God and to his throne? Who was the only child ever born? That was Jesus. Now, pause with me for a moment. 
The Bible says that the dragon stood before the woman to devour the child. When Jesus was born, did someone try to kill Jesus? Who? Okay, so we know Satan tried to kill Jesus. Does that make sense? Definitely Satan tried to kill him. But Satan didn't come as an angel and try to kill Jesus. He used someone. Who did he use? He used Herod. And Herod was a representative of the pagan Roman Empire. So if I could rephrase this, this is how I would say it. I would say that the dragon is primarily a symbol for Satan. But secondarily, it represents the pagan Roman Empire that Satan used to try to destroy Jesus. Now, don't forget this. The Bible said that the dragon gives his seat to the papacy. And this, is, this was literally fulfilled because it was pagan Rome that ultimately gave its seat or his throne to the papacy. And that was literally fulfilled, as this quote says from Professor LeBlanca on the history of this transition. Now, it says that this power would rule for 42 months. If you remember, 42 months, the Bible using a lunar calendar every month at 30 days, that's 1,260 days. But in prophecy, one day equals a year. That's 1,260 years. And if you remember, in our seminar, I shared with you that the third horn that established this power was plucked up in the year 538. That marked the political and religious unification of the papal power. That lasted for 1,260 years. And then in the year 1798, that power was taken away as the papacy lost its political power. It was still a church, but now it no longer had its political power. Does this power ask for worship? Definitely. Um, in their own words, they claim that they are Jesus, but hidden under the veil of flesh, okay? Now, this number 666, I'm going to give you two verses, and I want you to look very closely at this. We're going to put two verses together. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a what? It's the number of a man. Okay, so don't miss that. It's the number of a man. And then it says that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his what? Okay, so two verses, verse 18 and verse 17. One says it's the number of a man. The other says it's the number of his name. How many of you remember in school, we learned Roman numerals? Do you remember that? Roman numerals. So let, let's review. What's I? One, right? What's V? Five, right? What's C? A hundred. You remember this? Okay, some of you are still looking like blank. But if you remember these numbers, the, the Roman numeral system, it's one of the only languages. Now, there are others, but there's not many. It's one of the few languages where a letter has numeric value, right? Okay, now why is that important? Because the papacy is a Latin power. And, you know, they're, they're, look, this is not just their only title. This actually works with several of their titles. But here is an example of one of their names, okay? So they're called, in Latin, this expression, vicarious philidae, it simply means 
the vicar of God's son or the representative of God's son. That's Latin. And remember, Latin always has a numerical value for a letter, right? So when you add these up, this is very, very interesting because that when you add all of the letters and their numerical values, it actually adds up to 666. Now, over the years, I've met a number of people that have said to me, you know, I know other names that add up to 666. Now, I just want to point out, if you are right now scribbling out your letters of your name and it adds up to 666, don't worry because there's six, there's seven or eight characteristics of the beast. Does that make sense? This is simply another way to identify the power that the Bible describes as the beast power in Revelation 13. This is not the only one. It's just one of several. And if you remember from our fourth night together, our fourth and fifth night, we discussed the 12 identifying marks of the Antichrist power. This is the same power that in Revelation 13 is described as the beast who gives the mark. And that's a kind of a reiteration between those two presentations. So we've established who the beast is. It's the papal power. And may I just say this one more time just for our video. When we talk about the papacy, we don't want to include, we don't want to disparage faithful Catholic Christians because God has his people in the Catholic church. Can you say amen to that? It's like this. When Jesus came to this world, the Jewish nation as a whole rejected him as the Messiah. But were there still faithful Jews that accepted him? There were. And keep in mind that while the system rejected him, there were faithful Jews that still accepted and believed in him as the Messiah. In the same way, the papal system is what we're talking about here this morning. But there are faithful Catholics everywhere that love Jesus and serve him, okay? So we don't want to include those people in, as we talk about this papal power. Now, what is the mark of the beast? Well, in the chapter in Revelation 13, the beast is not literal. And he makes an image, but that's not a literal image either. Um, his name has a symbolic meaning. There's a number that has symbolic meaning. The seal is symbolic. So when we talk about the mark, it's very likely following by the pattern of things that are symbolic, that it's not going to be a literal mark. It's going to be a symbolic mark. And if you really look carefully at what the Bible says, let me point this out in Revelation 13, verse 16. Look carefully. He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark. What's the next word there? In. Did you see that word in? In their right hand or in their forehead. So it's not like a tattoo. It's not a UPC code. It's not some kind of chip. The mark of the beast is not a literal mark, okay? And, and I just want you to use common sense. The Bible gives strong warnings about the mark of the beast. It's a salvational issue. And does it make sense that if someone forced you to get a tattoo, that's not going to change your relationship with God? Does that make sense? So it's, it's much deeper than just some surface, you know, mark or something. And today we want to talk about what is the mark of the beast. So we know who the beast is. But did you notice that the mark of the beast goes in two places? Let's name them. It goes either in your hand or your forehead. Now, do you remember we studied in our earlier presentations, the book of Revelation has 404 verses. 
over half of them borrow language from the Old Testament. This is one of those verses. I'm going to bring you to a passage in the Old Testament where it talks about something that goes in the hand or between on your forehead. Look closely. Exodus 13, verse 9, it says, It shall be for a sign unto thee upon thy what? Upon thy hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes. Okay, so by the way, just in case you're noticing, it's not talking about your nose, it's talking about right here, okay? That the Lord's what? Law may be in thy mouth. Let's pause here. What did God want symbolically on the hand or between the forehead? What did he want? His law. Now, let me explain this. In the Bible, your hand represented what you do, your actions. And in the Bible, your forehead was a symbol of your thoughts. So does it make sense that what God wanted was for you to meditate on his law and do it? Does that make sense? Remember that verse, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do with all thy might? It's not that your hand just does things all by itself. This is a symbol of what we do, our actions. This is a symbol of what we think about. So what God was saying is, I want my law to be here and here. Now, you're going to laugh at this, but by the time Jesus came to this world, the Jews, they didn't get this. Jesus didn't want them to write the Ten Commandments here and here, but the Jews, by the time Jesus came, they were weaving the Ten Commandments into cloth, and they would wrap it around their forehead, and they would stitch it to the sleeve of their garments. They were called phylacteries. Remember Jesus said, you make broad your phylacteries? Well, that's what he was talking about. It was a symbol of the law. And you know, today, I, I think I told you, I used to sell books door to door. When I go to a Jewish, an Orthodox Jewish person's home, I automatically know right away that it's an Orthodox Jew. How do I know? On the door frame of any Jewish home, you will find a little piece of plastic. And if you look closely, it's a piece of paper that's rolled up. If you were to unscrew it, don't do this, but if you were to unscrew it and pull it out, you know what you would find? Ten Commandments. And you know why? Because God also said in other places, when you go in your gate or when you come out of it, but he didn't mean, you know, put it literally. What they didn't get is that what he meant was think about it and do it. Does that make sense? Here's another place where this is found. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart. Now, some of you may know that the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20. But some of you may not know that the Ten Commandments were repeated one more time before Moses died in Deuteronomy chapter 5. After the Ten Commandments are given in Deuteronomy chapter 5 again, then Moses was told to say this, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thy heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thy house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Now look closely. And thou shalt bind them for a what? A sign or a mark. This is another way to say it. Upon thy what? Upon thy hand, and, and they shall be as frontlet between thine. Now, please remember this. In the Old Testament, God wanted his Ten Commandments to be here and here, not literally, symbolically. Does that make sense? 
So whatever the mark of the beast is, this is what I know. It's going to be a counterfeit or against God's law. How do I know? It goes in the same two places, here or here. Does that make sense? So because this language is taken from Deuteronomy and Exodus, I know whatever the mark of the beast is, it's going to be in some way a counterfeit or opposing God's law. Let's look at something else about the mark of the beast. Now, notice what it says in Revelation 7 verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the what? The seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God where? In their foreheads. Now, please notice, the beast has a mark that he gives. Does God have a mark that he gives, yes or no? Yes, what is it? It's called the seal of the living God, and where does it go? It goes in the forehead. Did you see that? The seal of the living God, and it goes in the forehead. Now, the expression the living God in the Bible is always making reference to something. Let me read this to you, Acts 14, verse 15. And saying, sirs, why do you these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the who? Unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. Now let's pause. According to that verse, the living God is different from all the other gods, lowercase g, in what way? The living God is the one who did what? He created everything. That's the difference between the living gods and the other lowercase g gods, right? Now, why am I saying this to you? Because in the Bible, the words sign or seal, they're synonymous. No, it says about Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, okay? Did you know that in Scripture, not once, not twice, but four times the Bible refers to the Sabbath as God's seal or his sign. Let me read these to you. Exodus 31, verse 13, it says, Speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, Verily my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a what? It is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord that doth sanctify you. Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for perpetual covenant. It is a what? sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. In Ezekiel 20, the Bible says, moreover also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign. And then it says in verse 20, and hallow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a what? A sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So let me review the Bible describes the seal of the living God. Who is the living God? He is the creator. And what's the sign that God was the creator? It's the Sabbath. It's the reminder that he's the creator. Well, folks, make no mistake. This seal or this sign, it goes in the forehead. It's a symbol of those that are keeping God's commandments. But the mark of the beast, it's the opposite of that. It, go it also goes in the forehead but it gives allegiance or it gives homage to the power, the beast, okay? Now, here are three verses 
that all mention the mark of the beast. And I want you to notice this. Every time the mark of the beast is mentioned, these people who receive it, they're described as doing something. I want you to notice what the Bible says they're doing. Here's what it says. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the what? The mark of the beast. And upon them which worshipped his image. Now, that's Revelation 16, verse 2. Notice this next verse. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. And then finally, Revelation 19, verse 20, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, I don't know if you picked it up. In all three of those verses, the Bible describes people that received the mark of the beast. But did you notice that in every one of those verses, they are described as doing something? What is it that they're doing? They're all what? They're worshiping. The mark of the beast is connected with worship, okay? And then please look with me at this last characteristic, Revelation 13, verse 15. He had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and, what's the next word? Pause. What's a modern word for that? Force. That as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Now let's pause. What is a beast again in prophecy? It's a political power. Yeah, it's the papacy, but it's a political power. Now notice this. This beast power, he causes people or he forces people. How does a nation or how does a political power force people to do something? By making a law. Does that make sense? So whatever the mark of the beast is, it has to be enforced by a government, okay? So here are four characteristics of the mark of the beast. Number one, whatever it is, it's a counterfeit of God's law. It goes in the same place, forehead or hand. It's a counterfeit of God's seal. It involves worship. And it involves a government to enforce it, okay? Now, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you have to ask yourself this question. Which of these commandments would someday there be some kind of a law to try to force people to do the opposite of what God is asking them to do? So folks, when you ask the question, what is the mark of the beast? The Bible tells us that there is no new thing under the sun. In fact, that which has already been is that which is coming again, right? In other words, it's the history will repeat itself. The mark of the beast, according to the Bible, is Sunday worship enforced by government law. And this happened already. In fact, it was in the year 321 that they caused there to be a law enforcing Sunday to be a day of rest. In the catechism of the 1985 edition, this is what they say. This is a Catholic church. The civil authorities should be urged to cooperate with the church in maintaining and strengthening this public worship of God and to support with their own authority the regulations set down by the church's pastor. For it is only in this way that the faithful understand why it is Sunday 
and not the Sabbath day that we keep holy. In respecting the religious liberty and common good of all, Christians should seek recognition of Sundays and the church's holy days as legal holidays. It is time that we demonstrate our Catholic vitality and engage in the public policy debate. We have the power and the people to embark on this movement, a movement that will benefit all Americans. Now, how are they going to enforce the mark of the beast? Here's what it says in verse 17. And that no man might what? Buy or sell. Now, let's pause here for a moment. Many people ask me, will the government someday plant a chip in us that you can scan at the grocery store to buy food? I don't know. That may happen. It may not. I don't know about you guys, but cash is really something that I don't use much anymore. Like when I go to the grocery store, I scan my card. I just put it up next to the reader and it clicks. When I pay for gas now, I just put my card next to the reader and it clicks. And these days, almost everything is done electronically. Isn't that true? What's interesting is that the Bible tells us that in order to pressure people into going along with this, there will be an economic boycott. Let me paint you a scenario. So I want you to imagine for a moment that we have a hurricane that's bigger than Katrina. Let's say it strikes the southwest, southeast part of the U.S. And then let's say that out in the west, we have some bigger wildfires than we've had, you know, some, some massive fires that destroy huge swaths of land and towns. And then let's say that in the northeast, we have some blizzards that just decimate the cities of New York and Boston and so on. Have you ever noticed when there are big natural disasters in this country that Pat Robertson or, or different evangelicals will say something like this, these are the judgments of God and we need to get the country back to God. Have you, any of you ever heard that before? It's happened, I've heard it. Almost every time there's a huge disaster some voice in the evangelical world says, look, we got to get this nation back to God. Now, I want you to think for a moment. How do you get a country that has over 200 different religions, how do you get them to all agree on how to show that we all want to get back to God? Well, all these different churches, they may not agree on a lot of things, but one thing that they all have in common is the day that they worship. And so you can understand that in order to show solidarity, in order to kind of show support for this movement, there will be a push for Sunday worship. And how, what's, the, what's the factor to, to urge it along? It says economic boycott. Now, did you know that the average American, the average American has about $7,000 in credit card debt? And did you know that the average American has a mortgage? And they also might even have some student loans and maybe even a car payment. Now, do the math. 7000 in debt, you know, uh, a mortgage, car payment, student loans. I want you to think for a moment. I want you to just think for a moment. When this issue comes up, it says that no one can buy or sell. Would there be pressure on people to comply if you could lose your house, your car, your degree? You know, if you could lose all of these things, would that be pressure, yes or no? That would be huge pressure. Um, 
One of the things that I like to encourage people to do is to live debt-free. I mean, I know that sounds like a, an aside, but think about it. If you own your home and you own your car and you own what you have, does it make sense that when this issue comes, prophecy predicts there will be economic pressure. There will be less pressure on you if the financial pressure of it doesn't suddenly threaten to make you lose everything you have. Does that make sense? Let me uh, explain one, two more things and we'll close. Did you notice that the mark of the beast only goes in one of two places? Did you notice that? God wants his law here and here. But the mark of the beast, it says it goes in their, their right hand or in their forehead. So let me explain why. When things start to get bad, and I'm saying, I'm talking about these natural disasters, there will be people that will say, you know what, we need, America is going morally down the tubes. All of these issues that are happening right now in the world today, this is a result of that. And we do need to find some way to show the world that we are serious about God again. Let's move forward with the Sunday legislation. Let's move forward. Symbolically speaking, these people are those that are described as receiving the mark in the forehead. Why? Because ideologically, they agree. Does that make sense? But there are some people, they say, you know what? There's not a single verse in the Bible that supports worship on Sunday. And his whole life, Jesus kept the Sabbath. And Sabbath was instituted at creation. It has nothing to do with the Jews. It's part of the Ten Commandments. But if, you lose, if you're threatened with your house disappearing, your car disappearing, your degree being revoked, and all these things, does it make sense that there will be some people that even though they don't agree, they'll go along with it? And why? Because of the pressure. Symbolically speaking, they receive it in their hand. They don't agree, but they just follow with it by their actions. Okay? Now, in Jeremiah 12 and verse 5, there's a verse that reads like this. It says, if thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trustest they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? So Jeremiah is drawing a contrast here. And what he's asking is very simple. He's saying, look, if you are a foot soldier and you can't keep up, what will you do when they release the cavalry? Did you know that in ancient Israel, one soldier could carry up to 200 pounds of war implements? You know what that means? Your armor, your sword, your, sword short, your short sword, your spear, and your shield, all of those things combined could weigh 200 pounds. I don't know about you, but like that's about how much weight I squat when I go work out at the gym, okay? I couldn't run anywhere with that. But what Jeremiah is saying is, look, if you cannot run with the footmen, what are you going to do if they release the cavalry? Now, do you know there was a time when the Jordan River was very smooth. It, didn't, it wasn't angry. It didn't overflow. 
And sometimes God asked his people to cross it, and it wasn't a small river, but it took faith, and if they stepped foot, the river would part, right? But now Jeremiah is saying, look, if you can't, when things are calm and peaceful, if you can't step into the river, what makes you think that when the Jordan is angry and it's overflowing and it's flowing swiftly, what makes you think that at that time, you're going to have the faith to step in the water then? See, I have people that come to my seminar, and this is what they say, oh, I know what the mark of the beast is now. I'm not going to get it. it. It doesn't actually work like that. Um, when I was in college, we had a, uh, a gym. It was behind our dormitory. And that gym was made so that it was set up there because, you know, when guys work out, they make noise. You know, like they, you know, they grunt and they, you know, shout. And so it was designed so that if you shouted or made noise, nobody in the dormitory would hear. Well, one day between lunch, uh, sorry, between school and work, I, I had a break during lunch. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go into the gym and I'm going to get a workout in. So I went to the gym and there on the bench press was some weight. And I didn't count it up. I didn't say like, okay, this is 30. You know, I didn't. I just went and I thought, that looks about how much I could work out with. So I went and I got under it. So I got it up. And as soon as I pulled it down, I was stuck. It was too heavy. And, and this was the problem. It was so heavy that I couldn't really move it. I just had to push against it so that it didn't break my ribs, you know? And the other problem was I, I couldn't shout. If you've ever had like 250 pounds on your chest, you can't really breathe that good either. So I was stuck. And nobody would be at that gym for like seven hours. And I thought, I am in real trouble here. So here's what I found out. My left arm is actually weaker than my right arm. And what happened is, over time, my left arm started dipping. Then I heard the weight on the end of the bar sliding off. Because the guy who used it before me, he didn't put the collars on to lock the weight. So one plate fell off, then two plates, three plates, four plates. They fell off. And then when that happened, the bar was emptied and it swung over and I got out. I learned from that one experience something very important. If you want to bench 250, you actually have to start with like 100. And once you successfully master 100, then you go up to 130, and then 150, and then 180, 200, and 250. Does that make sense? You see, folks, if we can't follow God's simple instructions now, what makes you think that when this pressure comes economically and with the threat of death eventually, what makes you think that you could suddenly become a superhero of faith and stand for God amidst all of that. If you can't keep up with the footmen, there's no chance that when the cavalry comes, you're going to be okay. There's no chance. Which is why today what God is asking us is, just be faithful in the little tests that I send you right now. Does that make sense? You see, folks, we've talked about it in the seminar. The Sabbath is just one of the commandments. It's not any more important, but it's no less. 
And what God is saying is, look, in, in Daniel's day, it was to, to not break the second one, to, to bow down to images. At the end of time, it happens to be around the fourth commandment. Today, I want to ask my associates, they're going to pass out a card for you. And it's, it looks like this. This is what it says. It says, my decision for Christ. And there's only five points on this card, and I just want to ask you to go through this with me. And here's what the first one says. It says, I choose to be sealed by the Holy Spirit and have God's law written in my heart. If you can say that by faith today, would you put a check by that first point there? The second one says, I choose not to worship the beast, neither... uh, I choose not to worship the beast, receive its mark, or follow any pagan traditions. If you can say that by faith, please put a check by that second one. The third one says, I choose to keep the seventh-day Sabbath and to worship him that made heaven and earth. If that's your decision today, please put a check by the third one. The fourth one says, I choose to be among the saints who love Jesus and keep his commandments. If that's your decision, please put a check by the fourth one. The fifth one says, I would like a personal visit. Now, maybe you have a question. Maybe there's a struggle you have. Maybe there's an obstacle you're facing. Whatever the case is, if there's something that you would like a personal visit about, put a check by that one. And if you check that one, could you make sure you write your phone number in the blank because then I'll contact you to make an appointment. Please, make sure you have your name written on it. And then when you're done, by the way, does anybody need a pen? Anything, anybody need something to write with? When you're done with that, would you be so kind as to turn it upside down, pass it into the center, and I'm going to ask my associates to pick it up. As soon as they're done picking it up, we'll close with a word of prayer, and I want to invite you to join us for our fellowship luncheon downstairs. But just turn that upside down, pass it into the center aisle. Someone will come by and pick it up. As soon as they're done, I want to close our, our topic today. Okay, do we have those cards? Let's pray. Father in heaven. We're thankful for your mercy. We're thankful for your love. Lord, help us today to be faithful to you in the little tests so that when the greater tests come, by having exercised faith day by day, be ready to meet those trials with you. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray.